Does your company have a product or service that data professionals would benefit from? A BI tool, a cloud solution, or the kind of thing that a data skeptic listener would be interested to learn about? Reach out to advertising at dataskeptic.com. Maybe we can help you bring your message to the audience you're looking for. Have you ever been frustrated by the accuracy of data as portrayed in the media? Sure, we all have. A picture may be worth a thousand words, but if 900 of them are me complaining about the scale and the axis and the absence of error bars, then what good is the visual? But despite the availability of sophisticated techniques, I doubt if most people have or are going to read the grammar of graphics. Most won't watch an Edward Tufte lecture, and few people, I guess, ultimately are really going to care about the things that get hotly debated, and for good reason, in the data visualization community. Conveying a point estimate, pretty easy. Conveying uncertainty, you have lots of options, and not necessarily an obviously correct one. I guess this problem's a little harder than I thought. Welcome to Data Skeptic Interpretability. Today on the show, I'm joined by Jessica Hullman, Assistant Professor of Computer Science and Engineering at Northwestern University and author of the paper, Why Authors Don't Visualize Uncertainty. I picked up a number of great insights from this paper, and I'm looking forward to this conversation right after the break. Hey, Data Skeptic listeners, we're launching another survey, and we'd like your help. If you've got two minutes to spare, please take our survey at dataskeptic.com survey. Your feedback helps us deliver the quality content you can find from Data Skeptic, and you might just win a free t-shirt. So do me a favor and head over to dataskeptic.com survey and tell us about yourself. I'm an assistant professor at Northwestern, primary appointment in computer science, but I also have a partial appointment in journalism. I do research and advise students on data visualization. I run a lab where we focus on data visualization and uncertainty communication called the MU Collective or the Midwest Uncertainty Collective. Tell me a little bit more about the collective. What sorts of projects get taken on? So this is me and a colleague of mine, Matthew Kay, that co-direct it. I would say based on kind of shared interests that we discovered maybe four or five years ago when we started working together, we've really devoted a lot of time to thinking about kind of how do we redesign visualizations to help people reason better with uncertainty. And so a lot of our projects are concerned with things like how do we design ways for people to interact with data that better account for uncertainty from sampling error or other sources? How do we model reasoning under uncertainty as people are using visualization systems to make inferences? And we do some other work as well. We both kind of are sort of straight data visualization visualization people as well to some extent. So I do a lot of work on like automated visualization as well for different kind of settings. Like how do we make tools that help authors design things like dashboards? But a lot of our work, I'd say, is in some way focused on making better visualization tools for reasoning about data under uncertainty. I meant to hear you have an appointment that's both covering computer science and journalism catches my attention. What lies at the intersection of those two fields? So I think a lot of my work in visualization since I was in a PhD program has kind of focused on how people sort of naturally or spontaneously draw inferences from graphs and 
I would say in contrast to some of sort of the original work in the field of information visualization, which is like the field around sort of like computer generated visualizations of data, my work has focused a little bit more on kind of creating visualizations for settings like the media, where you have a large group of people all trying to interpret data, you're often trying to communicate data more so than to only support inference or analysis, which has kind of been more traditionally the topic of visualization research. And so I would say my interest in journalism came out of this desire to sort of focus on these aspects of visualization design and how we build systems that can better support these kind of communication contexts. And the media, I think, is a great example because people are looking to, you know, data-driven reports, interactives created by different news outlets in order to figure out kind of like, what should I believe about the world around me? Like, what's going to happen in the next election? What's going on with the climate? You know, what's going on with you know, the latest health pandemic. And so I think journalists have a ton of power in terms of how they present data to help people kind of make these everyday decisions about, you know, how they should prepare for different things or whether they should get out and vote. And so I think it's important that some researchers are focusing kind of on how do we convey uncertainty in ways that someone can understand without, say, you know, an advanced stats background? How do we help authors who maybe don't have the sort of advanced training in data science to still create visualizations that are useful? So I think there's a lot of important research problems at that space. And so that's kind of drawn me to this intersection. But it's definitely, I mean, it's a very weird intersection just in that computer science, which is more what I'm trained in, is very different from journalism. So I'm I'm always kind of navigating, you know, how to speak to both audiences. Well, I'm going to ask what I hope doesn't sound like an accusatory question, but why should we assume that the public at large that media is going to target has enough, you know, numeric literacy to understand representations of uncertainty? Hmm. Well, I would say because we reason about uncertainty constantly in daily life. And, you know, just because maybe when you put a graph in front of people, it's a little harder for certain people who haven't been exposed to graphs a lot does not mean that we don't have like very sophisticated cognitive and perceptual systems that are capable of seeing signal in noise, etc. So I would argue that even when it comes to uncertainty or probability, like we have a natural way in, in which we reason about these things. So if I asked you, you know, like, what are the chances that if you get to the bus stop every day at the same time, you're going to catch the bus. You can think about that. You know, you could probably harbor a guess. And that's because we're able to sort of do things like infer probabilities from things like frequencies in the real world. And so I think people do have ways of making inferences that are pretty reliable. A lot of times we use heuristics, which are kind of mental shortcuts. But in a lot of cases, the reason we've sort of evolved to use mental shortcuts to kind of make quick decisions from data is because they work well. And so even if the average person can't even tell you why they're making a certain judgment the way they are, that doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing some pretty sophisticated things. So I guess my mindset has always been kind of like, yes, people can be biased in some cases or people who aren't trained might have trouble understanding certain things, but I in no way think there's like innate deficiencies. I think we just don't know how to frame information in ways that kind of naturally make use of people's sort of internal representations or spontaneous ways of making sense of data. And so just to give one example relevant to the example I just gave, often we'll show uncertainty in data. By uncertainty, I mean things like sampling error, like our typical default methods will be things like error bars, where we're showing kind of an interval, which might be a confidence interval or might be a standard error range, and we'll show it as kind of a graphical annotation. That is a type of visualization that a lot of audiences, definitely untrained audiences or audiences that lack statistical background, have trouble with, even 
people who have statistical backgrounds struggle with these types of representations. But one of the things we found in my lab is that if we simply switch to sort of a frequency framing or a discrete framing of probability, this can help people a lot. So rather than showing you an interval, like an error bar on a bar chart, I might switch to showing you actual sort of draws from the distribution I'm trying to convey to you. So I, we can show you an animation where we're actually taking samples from the underlying distribution we want to convey, or we could show something static where we're showing a bunch of kind of dots. So where you would have a bar with an error bar, you're seeing sort of a depiction of the distribution, but made out of dots. So hypothetical kind of samples. And people can then reason about like, oh, two out of 10 times this might happen, or one out of five times I might see this outcome. This is one of the ways in which you take into account how people naturally reason about complex phenomena, in this case, probability. We look at the fact that you know people tend to do better with frequency framings. We can then incorporate that into how we design representations of data. And so what we find is that people do a lot better if we design the uncertainty visualization in such a way that accounts for what we're naturally good at or the ways that we naturally think. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a range of sophistication in literature, everything from what might, I guess, be on the grocery store checkout lines to academic journals. And I would hope we'd see more error bars in the latter. Where do you start to see the uncertainty visualizations beginning in that path from sort of casual to formal literature? Like we'll see it in some newspapers, we'll see it in some blogs. Where does it catch on, I guess, where people who produce publications? Unfortunately, I think it really has only caught on kind of as a norm in the scientific literature. And that's because I think it's expected there. So you can think about science or empirical science, at least, is largely kind of a discussion of uncertainty. And so we've developed as scientists the ability to recognize that when we present any sort of estimates, we need to put some error bounds on that or we somehow need to convey what we don't know. So I think in the sciences, it is kind of expected that you'll convey uncertainty. If you have a bar chart, you know, showing means people want to see some sort of representation of error, usually on an, an error bar. That doesn't mean they're working well in that setting, but that is at least where it's conventional. I think, unfortunately, once you move outside of a scientific domain, I think there's, so I've looked at journalists and people making sort of data-driven reports in government. I would say there, the norm tends to be to omit any sort of explicit representation of error or uncertainty, with the exception of when we're plotting raw data. So sometimes people will just show you some data they've collected and just show you all the data points. And so on some level, you're seeing distribution there. I think the problem is that so often in these government reports in the media, we are presenting data for inference. So, you know, sometimes we're presenting historical data, but we're presenting it in a way that people want to use it to make predictions about what's going to happen in the future or we're presenting some sort of model results. And there, I think there's this tendency to think that, oh, uncertainty is just going to kind of overwhelm my user. And that, to me, is very dangerous. So I think once you move outside of science, we tend to forget that people are still making inferences under uncertainty. And I think there's a tendency to believe that if we convey error or uncertainty kind of faithfully, we will confuse the reader so much that it'll be worse than if we don't convey it. So I think a really interesting paper by someone uh, also a professor at Northwestern, but in economics, Charles Mansky, where he calls this phenomena, the lure of incredible certitude, where we tend to want to present estimates as though they're basically certain. And so I have talked to a lot in a paper I did called Why Authors Don't Visualize Uncertainty. I, I talked to a bunch of journalists and data visualization designers. So people who are kind of well-respected in the sort of online community following visualization to ask kind of how do they see this question of like, should I convey uncertainty if I'm 
I'm presenting estimates. And it was really interesting. I think there's a lot of, on the one hand, responsibility or feeling of responsibility and, and recognition that people are making decisions from the data we show. They're making all these kind of everyday decisions about what to do. And so we should be conveying error or uncertainty. But at the same time, I heard a lot of different viewpoints about it's going to confuse people. Or I work with an editor, those people who are journalists, where it's all about kind of maintaining the attention of the reader and we can't put anything that might potentially distract them or overwhelm them. There were also a lot of reasons why I think journalists and other authors are not conveying uncertainty related to just kind of the fact that it's difficult to calculate a good error estimate. A lot of people, even who are creating data visualizations, are perhaps not comfortable with statistical concepts. We're used to dealing with data as though it's kind of all just historical information and we just want to know what happened in our data set. But when it comes to training on how to think about any sort of case where we're using data to make predictions about the future or draw inferences outside of the sample of data that we actually have, I think that's where a lot of people just feel kind of insecure. You know, stats is hard. It's a lot of the important kind of concepts and stats are not intuitive. And I think people are very aware of that. And so I heard a lot of reasons related to sort of lack of certainty in one's ability to communicate it well. So I think there's other reasons related to that. We don't have good visualizations. That's part of what my lab has been working on. But I think there's by and large this feeling that like we only have these sort of crufty statistical graphics like error bars and box plots, and we can't use those because they don't feel appropriate for broader audiences. So there's a big, big sort of bucket of all these different reasons, I think, that are contributing to why we don't see uncertainty communicated much. That said, there are certain graphics departments at some of the big newspapers. There are certain government agencies that are really trying hard to change this and really innovating. So the Upshot, New York Times graphics department has been doing really interesting stuff for a while with things like simulation to show people that they have some model predicting election outcomes, etc. Like what are possible outcomes we could get from this model or what are possible outcomes that are congruent with what the model is saying, etc. A lot of interactives where people can kind of experiment and make their own predictions and compare to what the data says. So these are all, I think, interesting ways in which people are trying to innovate. And unfortunately, it's still kind of a minority of authors doing that kind of work. So I can imagine where there's a, a big soup of ideas, many of which you covered as to why someone might not include uncertainty. Are there any that dominated the response of the professionals you interviewed? Or were there just a lot of variety in the answers? So I think the primary one, I would say, is just this idea that it's not going to help me communicate what I want to communicate. So even the people who are not in journalism still kind of talked about how you're trying to keep butts in the seats, as one person said. So you're constantly editing. And I think for visualizations intended to communicate, the authors are often aware of what messages they are trying to convey. So there's a few patterns or a few different types of tasks they want to support. And I think there was a very strong perception of across the board, even when they spoke about wanting to convey uncertainty, that it would get in the way of communicating this pattern or this message that I'm explicitly trying to get across. And it was so pervasive that it basically led me to then start asking myself as I was interviewing people and thinking about the data, I was, is that maybe the more pragmatic thing to do? Are they sort of correct, perhaps, that uncertainty could only sort of obfuscate this message or this signal that they're trying to get across? I ended up sort of thinking 
very deeply about this. It was kind of a fun project and really starting to think about, well, what happens when someone is looking at a visualization and you're trying to use your visualization to convey some message to them? Like, how do they judge whether that message is true or not? Because what a lot of the authors seem to say or refer to was like, they went kind of through this exploratory data process themselves, where they had a bunch of data, they looked at it in all different ways, they figured out what are the patterns, those patterns become like the messages or the patterns they want to convey to others. And I think what they're not potentially thinking about is how does the end user, the viewer, the reader for a journalism outlet, etc, how are they going to decide if that message is actually there? Because that's where uncertainty is critical. If I'm showing you averages, etc. And the point is that I want to show that there's a big difference between this candidate and this candidate's chance of winning, etc. How does the reader really judge that without any notion of the error in those estimates? I think one thing that I sort of surmised is that while the best visualization designers are thinking about this kind of thing, it's still, we don't always, when we design visualizations for these broad settings, really specify like, what is the task I want someone to do? And exactly how are they going to do that task? And how are different aspects of my visualization design going to help them or hinder them in doing that task. So anyway, I, I ended up sort of really getting deep into like, what do people do when they have a visualization and they're trying to judge, is there a pattern here? And that visualization doesn't show uncertainty versus shows uncertainty. And there's actually some really interesting work done by some statisticians, people like Andrew Gelman, Andreas Buja, Diane Cook, that proposes models for what we do naturally when we look at a graph to judge if there's a pattern. So there's this area of kind of stats called graphical statistical inference. And what they argue is that often when you look at a graph, you have sort of an implicit imagined reference distribution. So you're kind of looking at the data and you're trying to compare that to some mental model you have of like what's reasonable for that data set. And is this like a deviation from some expected pattern that I'm looking for? So maybe if you're looking at a histogram, you're kind of implicitly thinking about is it a normal distribution or not? Because often that's how we use histograms. And so in the same sort of project where I ended up that was really starting to think about like precisely what happens when a viewer looks at a visualization and they're trying to judge, do I believe this is a pattern? And how does conveying uncertainty actually help the author convey this pattern? Because I think the, the reality is that if you don't convey uncertainty, your users potentially are mentally filling in the gap on some level. So they're seeing a difference between two bars in a bar chart and either they're not thinking about uncertainty at all, like either they're just comparing the distance of those two bars, perhaps like relative to the entire size of the axes, or they're imagining some amount of uncertainty if they're more savvy, but you have no control over how much uncertainty they're imagining. On some level, like the argument I make in the end, trying to do this kind of formally through these models of graphical statistical inference is that it's actually as an author in your best interest to convey uncertainty, but to do so in a way that sort of gives your reader the right reference distribution to be thinking about. I think part of the reason we don't see a lot of uncertainty is that we're not always thinking as deeply as we need to about exactly what happens when people look at graphs to try to judge signal. And I think part of the reason too is that we haven't, still in visualization research, like we have some idea of how people make these visual judgments, but we really haven't gone as far as we need to in terms of even trying to model what happens in a user's head. Like to what extent are we imagining filling in information when we make a judgment from a graph? To what extent are we sensitive to things like the axis scaling? Like we know that we are, you know, like when you scale a bar chart and you cut off the zero, that obviously really changes the impression versus if you scale down to zero, which you always should with a bar chart because you're trying to show a proportion. Like people are very aware that like these sort of small choices can change the interpretation a lot. But I think there's still a lot further we need to go in terms of answering this question of what do people do? What cues in the graph are they looking at when we're not conveying uncertainty? And I 
think things like access scaling end up being these very important cues that people are using, which are potentially correlated to like effect size, but not the same thing. And it's really important that we recognize unless we're actually showing uncertainty, like there's no way our viewer can come to a valid conclusion unless we're giving them the full data sample and they go and do the analysis themselves. So that's kind of my mindset now on uncertainty visualization is that I need to convince people that it actually helps you convey your message. It's not going to distract your users so much that they're going to be lost. Yeah. Is there any merit to this fear that the presence of error bars are just going to confuse and drive readers away? I think there is merit. I think that's why it gets hard is that when you're conveying a distribution versus a point estimate. So on some level, if everybody is looking at the same point estimate, I think there's a tendency to think that at least we're all thinking about the same things. Therefore, if I try to predict what this set of users who's looking at my visualization is going to think or conclude, at least I know that it's bounded because everybody is seeing this thing. I think what we're not recognizing is that some people are just focusing on the point estimate. Some people are mentally imagining a distribution. But I do think there's merit in this idea that when you start showing the distribution, it's no longer everyone is optimizing as if the point estimate is the real thing. I mean, it's really hard to say like in which case it's worse. And that's one of the things I want to study. But I think when you start showing the distribution, it is possible that some people are overwhelmed by it. And so they just give up on the visualization. They never get the point estimate. I guess that's one possibility. Another possibility is some people are very risk averse. And so they make a decision as though it's the worst possible outcome. And other people are not risk averse at all. And they focus on the top of the distribution, you know, if higher is better, they're thinking, oh, this is what's going to happen. Or there's motivated reasoning, like I want this outcome to happen. And now you've shown me all these outcomes are possible. So I can cherry pick which one I want. So I think there's more room for people to focus on different parts of a distribution if you show uncertainty. But I think at the end of the day, I mean, you want people to be able to adjust their decision based on things like what outcomes they want to be best prepared for, etc. So I think there's really no excuse not not to show it. But I do think this fear that it's going to confuse people or that I can't predict anymore how people are going to see this thing is very real. I don't want to say that that's not a valid concern. Thanks to this week's sponsor, Brilliant. Brilliant's mission is to help people achieve their learning goals. So whether you're a student, a professional brushing up or learning cutting edge topics, or someone who just wants to understand the world better, you should check out Brilliant. Set a goal to improve yourself, and then work on that goal a little bit every day. Brilliant makes that easy with interactive explorations and a mobile app that you can use on the go. If you're naturally curious, want to build your problem-solving skills, or need to develop confidence in your analytical abilities, then get Brilliant Premium to learn something new every day. Brilliant's thought-provoking math, science, and computer science content helps guide you to mastery by taking complex concepts and breaking them up into bite-sized, understandable chunks. You'll start by having fun with their interactive explorations, and over time you'll be amazed at what you can accomplish. Get started now by heading over to brilliant.org slash dataskeptic. Once more, that's brilliant.org slash dataskeptic. Sure. Well, as you point out in the paper, uh, probably the first step towards successfully communicating uncertainty is recognizing that there's value in it. Uh, of the people you surveyed, how many would you say are there who at least say that there is definitely value in portraying uncertainty? 
Oh, I would say, yeah, the weird tension is that pretty much everybody said there's value in it. I should say I surveyed about 90 authors who create visualizations as part of their professional work. And then I interviewed, I think, another 13 who are kind of very well-respected journalists and authors. And I mean, it was almost unanimous that everybody thought there was value. That's why it became so interesting that we're all recognizing this is really important and we feel like it's our responsibility, but we're not actually conveying it. So like, what is the problem there? And that's where I think there's these beliefs that, oh, it's a norm not to convey it. I don't know how to convey it. It's going to confuse people and just this inability to recognize the role that uncertainty plays in how people make judgments. All of those things, I think, are what play into this fact that everybody wants to seem to do it, but they're not actually doing it. Yeah. In not knowing how to convey it, is that more of a methodological or design problem or is there a software problem there as well? Oh, I think there's both. I mean, I think what we've focused on in my lab first has been like, what's the underlying representation? So rather than using things like error bars, like these interval or graphical annotation formats, and rather than using things like your typical density plot or these continuous representations, like we've focused on changing the representation to some sort of discrete framing. So rather than showing you a density plot, can I show you just draws from that same distribution as an animation? Or can I show you what we call a quantile dot plot, which is basically a discretized version of a density plot. I would say we've started by thinking like, what's the representation? But then these questions come up as well about how do you help people then construct uncertainty visualizations that are valid, that are going to show uncertainty in the quantities they actually want to show uncertainty in, that are going to allow them to use these techniques without having to understand things like how do I resample my data in order to show animated draws, etc. And my colleague Matt Kay recently has done some work really aimed at kind of the construction of these different types of plots. So of all the different uncertainty visualizations you can do, how do you help people kind of make choices in this large design space? He's been working on a probabilistic grammar of graphics for R, so something you could use as you're making plots in R. So as part of some of our other work, my students have also been looking at how do we now integrate some of these different types of representations into data analysis tools for specific purposes where people are using visualization systems to do analysis of their own data, et cetera. So I think it's both. There's like the sort of making it possible to author these things on the system side. But first, to me, the first problem is how do we even represent it? Like what's the best abstraction for probability or uncertainty, which it seems to be a frequency framed representation. Some of my other work looks at even more sort of obviously interactive approaches to help people reason with uncertainty. So I kind of think of it as like, well, we want people to get better at reasoning about uncertainty in the data and kind of don't just take the data at face value, like recognize that this data is fallible in some ways. And so we can focus on how do we represent uncertainty or visualize it. But then I think the whole other side of the picture that we often ignore in visualization research is what are the other ways in which we prompt people to just be more critical about data? And one line of research I've been working on for a while now is looking at how do you sort of get people to consider their own prior knowledge and kind of their own expectations about what's realistic for this estimate, et cetera, as they're interacting with a visualization as a way to sort of, again, prompt them to think outside the data. Like, don't just take this at face value. And so if you've seen the New York Times You Draw It series, they were experimenting with this a few years ago where they had a few visualizations where they want to show you some relationship, say, between the chances 
is a child goes to college and the parent's income percentile. And so rather than just showing you the line graph to start off with, they asked each viewer to basically sketch what they thought that relationship looked like. And then after you made the sketch, you could see the observed data, which in this case was a line that was maybe even straighter than you would have expected, representing kind of a more consistent relationship than you would have expected. And then you could also see what other people had predicted. And I thought it was a great way to get a visualization user to think kind of outside the data for a moment, think about how does this data correspond to maybe my prior beliefs about this. And so we started doing some work around the same time they were starting to try these things out, looking at just what's the kind of effect on a user if you ask them to predict data before they see it, and you ask them to graphically predict. So data visualizations are nice in that we can get people to just make sketches of what they think the data will look like. So in an initial couple studies, we found that basically people will remember the data you show them better if if you ask them to first make a prediction about it. So not super shocking, given that in educational psych, people do these kind of techniques where they ask you to explain something to yourself or ask you to predict something before you actually get the real answer. But then we kind of went beyond that and started asking questions about, could we even evaluate how well a person updated their beliefs given some data? So assuming we can get you to tell us what are your expectations about this parameter, what's a reasonable value of this parameter, then I'm going to show you, say, some proportion or some slope representing a relationship between two variables. Can I then take what I know about your expectations, take the observed data that I'm going to show you now in the visualization, and then predict what you should believe if you're a rational belief updater. So using Bayesian inference, you know, assuming you have some set of prior beliefs about what's plausible, in terms of these parameter values, you see some observed data and you update your beliefs using Bayes' rule. Can we use that paradigm basically to evaluate how well people interpret and update beliefs from data? We've been doing that comparing kind of normative Bayesian inference given the prior beliefs that a user gives us and comparing that to then the posterior beliefs that they say they hold after they see the visualization. This has been kind of an interesting, I think, way to look at visualization evaluation. And what I like about it is that we've learned a lot already just about how people discount sample size. So a lot of people update their beliefs in a pretty normative Bayesian way when it comes to shifting the location of your beliefs. So say I want to, I'm going to show you some data about like a survey result, like the proportion of people in the U.S who have Alzheimer's, who are in assisted living centers. So I can elicit your beliefs about that proportion. So maybe your prior beliefs are centered around 30%. You think 30% of people in assisted living centers have dementia. I show you some observed sample, which is maybe says it's like 42%. What we notice is that when it comes to doing kind of a Bayesian update just of the location of your beliefs, people are pretty close to normative. So I'm going to do some basically weighted average of 30%, which was my prior, and 42%, and I'm going to arrive at some value between those, which is weighted by the sample size of the observed data and the sample size or the uncertainty in my prior beliefs. What we found is that people are really, really bad at updating or becoming appropriately certain given the information they had before and then the new data that they get. So people are often overconfident when you show them a small sample and very, very underconfident when you show them a very large sample of data. So we do weird things with uncertainty or variance or sample size. We don't perceive these things very accurately. This way of sort of evaluating people against normative Bayesian inference has been really valuable in that it allows us to sort of see exactly how these biases manifest in a way that we couldn't do with your standard visualization evaluation, which would be something like asking just like, how well do people perceive the observed data? Like we can't really measure updating from the standard 
standard type of evaluation. And so I'm excited about this paradigm just in that it gives us a way to actually look not just at how people see data, but actually what they take away from a representation of data. And then we can try to design better visualizations given these biases in updating that we observe. As I'm trying to think Bayesian about it, and we'll take the dementia case. If my prior was 30, maybe it's some Gaussian distribution with mu around 30%. If a medical professional tells me, oh, it's 42%, there's a part of me that hopes my posterior will be heavily peaked towards what they told me. But I don't know, maybe some mixture. I don't know how they're reliable they are. There's lots of studies. Maybe I have a distrust of doctors. I don't know. How do I parameterize the sample given that everyone brings a different sort of background to the table? So parameterize the sample. What do you mean by that? So for example, the posterior, I could say the most rational solution is to then believe that 42% of patients have dementia. It would be surprising if anyone said above 42, but I'd accept between 30 and 42. Yeah. So in our case, I mean, what we're doing is basically finding through a simple Bayesian model, like what is the normative posterior distribution? So in the case of proportions, we're modeling it as the observed data, we have a binomial distribution, but the prior then is like a beta distribution. So it's all in kind of a beta binomial world. I mean, all we're looking at really is we're taking these two distributions, the beta for the prior, and then the beta corresponding to the binomial for the observed data. And we're basically doing a Bayesian update as though we have this distribution and this distribution. So you can think of it as like your prior is some beta distribution. And because of the way the beta distribution is parameterized by alpha and beta, we can actually infer kind of what sample size is implied by your prior. Like your prior is a distribution, but your prior acts as though you just saw a sample with like 30 out of 100 people. And now our observed data say it's like a sample of like 7,000 people. And it says 42% of those 7,000 had dementia. So now your normative posterior should basically be accumulating both samples samples and arriving at some, I don't know off the top of my head what it is, but something between 30 and 42%, much closer to 42%, but where you've basically like accumulated certainty in the Bayesian update. And you can do this with normal distributions too, but we're using basically simple models, um, simple Bayesian models. What's interesting about it is that even if we don't think that that's how people are actually going to update. So even if we think like, well, some of these people, maybe they give us kind of a week prior indicating like, I don't really know what the value is. The observed data, I think is realistic to assume that maybe some people, when you show me some observed data and my prior was kind of weak to begin with, like maybe I just throw out my entire prior. So maybe the posterior I give you basically matches the observed data because I really don't trust myself and I trust the data. Like what's interesting is that even though our Bayesian model is going to assume that people are always kind of aggregating information, we can basically use that normative in order to see like, do people appear to be throwing out their prior? How much do they appear to be weighting the observed data versus their prior relative to a Bayesian agent? I'm not saying that I think people are actually doing perfect Bayesian updates according to simple models, but it's a super powerful kind of way to then start to say like, well, what are they overweighting or underweighting? We're definitely recognizing ways in which people don't act like Bayesian agents, where they don't accumulate sample size the way a Bayesian would in this particular setting with proportion. If anything, you know, like if you see data that has a high sample size, but it's kind of a little bit off from the estimate of your prior, often people become less certain about anything, which in the normative Bayesian model, they would actually become even more certain about something in the middle. So we kind of can get a sense of if people are Bayesians, what does it look like? It's not quite normative according to the kind of simple models we're using. I mean, perhaps it highlights ways in which people are commonly drawing the wrong conclusions. Can we back that into lessons for how we do better visualization? 
Exactly. Yeah. So one of the things we can use this whole paradigm for is just to learn about how people are actually updating their beliefs. But even better, we can use it to create better visualizations and better visualization systems. And so one of the things we did initially when we started this work was, well, we can get this sort of pretty precise measures of exactly how people are updating, how that differs from normative inference. And then we can change how we visualize the data with respect to how we're emphasizing uncertainty. And so one of the things we did, we did this initially with portions. So just showing a proportion as people often will in the media as kind of an icon array where you basically have like a grid of circles or a grid of little people figures and you're like shading some in proportional to whatever the proportion is. And often in the media, we don't usually see uncertainty in proportions if they're shown in icon arrays, but maybe they'll tell us the sample size of the poll or whatever it is. So we tested that kind of case where we're just showing you an icon array, telling you sample size, and then we tested ways of conveying uncertainty. For instance, we can show you an animated instance of an icon array where each frame in the animation, which is happening kind of quickly, is showing you a draw from the distribution. So in this case, from the binomial distribution that represents the observed data. So we found that people become much closer to Bayesian, although they're in certain cases, they're still far off, but they become much closer to Bayesian when we show them an uncertainty visualization like the animation that actually integrates the uncertainty right into the visual rather than kind of separating it by giving them sample size on the side. There's other cool things you can do with this. So when we did this evaluation between different visualization types, one of the things we can do is we can take the posterior beliefs that people tell us they had. We can take their prior beliefs, which they told us before we showed them any data was what they believed. And we can actually kind of try to infer if this person was a Bayesian, what was the sample size that they perceived the data to have? And so this becomes a kind of interesting way to think about how good is an uncertainty visualization. Like you want one that brings estimates close to the actual sample size that they saw. And so one of the the things we found was that in particular, like when we show people a very large sample, so we showed them a sample like of 700,000 people, which was an actual survey result presented in the media for dementia in assisted living center residents. When we show people these huge samples, they basically, without a good uncertainty visualization, they perceived this 750,000 sample as though it was about 400 people, which is like grossly discounting the amount of information in that data. When we showed them the animated uncertainty, I think the average jumped up to about six. 67,000 was how they perceived sample size. So they were still really far from the actual sample size, but it can help a lot. And it gave us this kind of different perspective on what's going on with an uncertainty visualization. So we have this kind of catch-22. We know there are techniques that will help with uncertainty, and yet at other times it can perhaps confuse readers. Do you have any, I don't know if we can fit it in a fortune cookie, but any wisdom that data visualization practitioners would benefit from? Yeah, I think about the inferences that your user is going to do, like really think carefully, what should they be able to see? And how will they know if they actually see this? If you have patterns that you want them to see, what are those? What comparisons really should they be making? I think all visualization is really about deciding what comparisons you want the user to be able to make, and then think about how uncertainty plays into that, and how without uncertainty, they're going to make that comparison or make a decision based on that comparison. I think often when we think about it at that level, What's the conclusion someone's going to draw when they try to make this comparison without uncertainty that can potentially help us realize why we need to show it because they might be overly confident in something they see because we haven't conveyed the error and the uncertainty. To sum that up in a fortune cookie, (laughs) think deeply about your user's inferences. Absolutely. Well, usually before I wind things up, I like to ask, is there anything you think I should have asked that I didn't? I think I would say... 
you know, how should we think about visualizations differently just as data scientists or people who use visualization, but maybe who aren't researchers. And I would say that we should be wary of the idea that visualizations are really good for pattern finding. I think visualizations are good for pattern finding, but the problem is that we're really, as people, we're very good at finding patterns, even when they don't exist. And so if we treat visualizations as always being this tool for like exploratory analysis, et cetera, and we never think about how do people actually confirm what they think they see with a visualization, then we're going to end up with a lot of people jumping to conclusions from visualizations that aren't really supported. So be wary of visualizations for pattern finding without also thinking about how that visualization is going to allow you to conclude whether that pattern is real or not. Yeah, absolutely. I think good advice. Well, Jessica, where can people follow you online? I am on Twitter, Jessica Holman, just my name, all one word. If you want to check out my lab's research, it's Mu Collective, M-U-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-I-V-E dot C-O, so mucollective.co or dot northwestern.edu. You can find all of the papers by my students, me, my colleague, Matt Kay, and his students. Yeah, I would say that's it those two places. Awesome. Well, I'll have links to both of those in the show notes. Thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show and share your work. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Data Skeptic Interpretability. Our guest today was Jessica Holman. Our theme song is Number 5 by Big D and the Kids Table. Claudia Armbruster is our associate producer. Vanessa Bersiaga does guest coordination. I've been your host, Kyle Polich. Stay safe and inside, everyone. Oh,